Welcome to the Ray Harryhausen Podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. I'm John Walsh and I'm a trustee of the foundation and I'm joined by our collections manager, Connor Heaney. Hello, Connor. Hello, John. Episode 14, we've, we've come a long way and today's an exciting episode because we're going to talk in depth about one of our anniversary films for this year, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. That's right, yes. So um, it's 40 years since the release of the film and it's the third and final Sinbad in the Loose Trilogy, I guess you could call it, um, with the seventh Voyage of Sinbad first, then the Golden Voyage of Sinbad and now Eye of the Tiger. And uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking as we do about the film and the uh, the legacy that the film has these many years later. We'll talk a bit about the, the creature collection and which creatures, if any, have survived. Um, and also, rather exclusively and, and rather proudly, we can say that for the first time, we're going to premiere some excerpts from the previously unreleased commentary track uh, from the film with Ray Harryhausen himself discussing with Colin Arthur, the makeup special effects whiz who worked on the film, and the film itself, and they discuss all aspects, and uh, it's, it's going to be a fascinating episode, Connor. It will indeed. I'll kick us off with a plot summary, and then we can get into some of the many conversation points there are about this classic film. Filmed in the miracle of Dinorama. Starring Patrick Wayne, Taron Power, Jane Seymour... Sinbad, played by Patrick Wayne, moors at Charak, intent on seeking permission from Prince Kasim to wed his sister, the Princess Farah. He finds that his city is under curfew, and when he shelters in a nearby tent, he is attacked by three ghouls appearing from a fire. Disposing of the ghouls, Sinbad learns from Farah that Kasim is still uncrowned because of a spell cast in him by their witch mother Zenobia, who wishes her son Rafi to be Caliph. Knowing only that the prince is ill, he sails with Farah and a covered cage to find Melanthius, hermit of Kasgar whom it is hoped can remove the spell. Zenobia and Rafi follow in a metal boat, powered by the Minotaur, a metal half-man, half-bull. During the voyage, Simbad discovers that the cage holds a baboon, which Farah tells him is Kasim. Arriving at Kasgar, they find Melanthius and his daughter Dion. The old man agrees to guide Simbad to the frozen lands at the world's end, and there they will find the ancient powers of Hyperborea, which may restore a prince. Reducing herself to the height of a hand, Zenobia boards Sinbad's boat and learns of their destination. The baboon-struck prince sees her, but she escapes when a wasp the size of a bird attacks Melanthius. While Zenobia enters the land of Hyperborea through an ancient ice tunnel, Sinbad and his crew travel over the frozen wastelands, where they encounter a giant walrus, and later, in the tropical interior, a giant Neanderthal man. This primitive man, Trog, shows Sinbad the way to the centre of Hyperborea, through a great stone gate in the shape of a huge face. Once through, they see a massive pyramid from which emanates a strange light. 
Zenobia has already arrived at the pyramid and by using the Minotaur has forced her way inside, but in doing so the Minotaur is destroyed and the temperature inside begins to change. When Sinbad and his party arrive, Prince Rafi attacks the baboon and during the struggle Rafi is killed. The baboon is hoisted into the light source and Prince Kasim is restored. Now the shrine's temperature is changing and a saber-toothed trigger which had been frozen for centuries begins to stir and the creature's malevolent yellow eyes flicker open. During a terrible battle, Trog dies, but Simbad manages to kill the tiger and along with it the evil witch. Simbad, Farah, Melanthius and Dion return to Charak to rejoice as Kasim is finally crowned Caliph. So John, that's the plot. Um, it's a film that came out 40 years ago, so you were perhaps quite young at the time, but do you remember going to see this in the cinema? I do actually, yes. This was, um, this was, it's interesting hearing that plot because it's it quite an involved film with lots and lots happening. And I think probably when you're a child, it's, it's harder to kind of follow it all with the politics of, um, of Zenobia and her being like the pushy mum uh, trying to get her son to be Caliph. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing which is most striking, of course, is the uh, iconic poster for Eye of the Tiger. It's probably my favourite of all of the Sinbad film posters. And uh, there are some of the sequences in the film that are some of my favourite sequences of Ray's films. When it came out, of course, Superman and Star Wars were around at the same time. So depending what part of the UK you lived in, you may have seen any one of those films in a different order. Uh, Superman and Star Wars opened in 77 and 78 in the States, but often it could be a year later before the UK and, and different boroughs in London would get a print. Um, so I don't quite remember which I saw first. I, the Tiger, was um, splendid cinema entertainment. And again, as I've said before, if you weren't a big fan of animated cats and dogs sing-songing around the piano, then this was really something to look forward to. And it really did have a, uh, a spectacular array of creatures. Um, but from a political point of view, this, this was a bit of a departure from, from the other creatures and the other, if you like, motives from the other two Sinbad films, which were quite dark and, and black magic-y. So lots of criticism around Golden Voyage of Sinbad in 1974 for its devilish imagery. And Middle America felt that it wasn't... Um, appropriate for Satan to be coming in through the back door or the side door or whatever door it was um, to impressionable audiences. So this film very much plays to its strengths with creatures from the natural world. So you have a giant warus, you have the baboon, of course the saber-toothed tiger, trog, the wasp. Um, I think the only creatures that are from the underworld or the netherworld would be the ghouls and of course Minotaur. Minotaur, who would be the perfect bodyguard slash assistant. Wouldn't you agree, Connor? Yes, that's right. I think everybody would like to have a Minotaur, uh, particularly with that mechanical heart that you can control, a real kind of Frankenstein's monster. But it's true, as you say, the, the film's uh, animation and the, the models that Ray created for this film, it's a real menagerie it's based on, on real-life creatures and real-life animals. And, of course... None is more perfect an example for this than the baboon. The baboon looks like a real animal. It's a really wonderfully animated creature. Many people who saw the film for the first time just assumed that Ray had trained an ape because it's it looks so natural. And in fact, the the entire kind of basis for the film was from an Arabian Nights illustration of a baboon playing chess. Now, this was originally going to be a scene in the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, which was cut uh, for 
for for numerous reasons, but it's a it's an image that really stuck with Ray. So when it came to Columbia demanding another Sinbad film because Golden Voyage had been so successful, this was really his starting point. He thought, well, there was that scene with an ape or a baboon playing chess. How can I, how can I develop this and and uh, really work a plot around a, a prince that's been turned into an ape and his quest to be returned back to his human form. So from there. I think a lot of the other creatures developed and the key drawings and the storyboards and the continuity sketches for Eye of the Tiger are wonderful. They really are some fantastic artwork which just shows the the level of ideas that Ray was having in the mid-1970s. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, we've talked in the past about how Ray always had other films he wanted to do. And I think returning to Sinbad um, for a second time so soon after Golden Voyage when there were so many other films he wanted to make, um, it, it's a tricky sell, isn't it? Because from a producer's point of view, you want to you want to return to something that um, you've had recent success with. But in all of Ray's filmography, he always does something very different as his next film. He never does a direct sequel to something or something along the same lines. And although this doesn't carry the same story across or same actors, it is Sinbad again. And it's, it's basically on the heels of Golden Voyage. But with a much bigger budget, you know, I think it always surprises people when they find out how much the budgets are for the films. If we think um, 1958, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, in dollars, $650,000. But when you jump right forward to 1974, um, or 73, it was released in 73, end of 73, Golden Voyage of Sinbad, $982,000. Now that's a really low dollar amount when you'd think a film like the omen made at a similar time four to five million dollars um so bear that in mind nine hundred eighty two thousand dollars for golden voyage and then you have sinbad and the eye of the tiger in 77 released in 77 a budget 3.5 million dollars so a a massive increase a, a three and a half fold in fact, more than a three and a half fold in, increase on, on the budget there. And people often say to me, really, they thought that Eye of the Tiger was shot quickly and cheaply. And no, that's not the case. It was a much more expensive film. They really did throw the kitchen sink at it. It's a longer film. There's more animations. There's more set pieces. There's more people. Everything about it is more. And yet, and yet the perception is, oh, I think it was a, a lower budget quickly cashed in follow-up and uh and there is a reason for that and we're gonna we're gonna talk about some of those controversial choices that were made but think about it the usual players were were not available uh bernard herman had uh, sadly passed on by this point taxi driver was his last film so uh miklos rocha who did golden voyage he he um he wouldn't be coming back anytime soon to work with charles schneer after that experience he was promised a big orchestra. He got a small one. So Rocha was, was not going to play ball. And if you're making something fast, you're not always getting the best people. You're getting who's available. And this is no detriment to the people that worked on Eye of the Tiger. But there is that sense of urgency. It could have been um, maybe developed for another year and, and could have been shined. But maybe the money wouldn't have been there from from Sony Pictures or Columbia as they were called in the day so 
From a producer's point of view, it was the right decision. From a creative point of view, mm, not sure. What do you think, Connor? Well, I think, as you mentioned, it's astounding to think that the Golden Voyage of Sinbad was made for less than a million dollars. Like, that is just a shocking fact. But what's more incredible is the fact that it made ten times or more that amount in uh, in its takings. Its box office was huge. It was a massive success. And so there was great demand for a sequel from, from Columbia. Sometimes the pieces just fall together nicely, which is what I think happened on on the Golden Voyage and a lot of our, well, most of Ray's films. Uh, when it came to Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, there were a couple of choices that were perhaps made that it didn't fit quite as well. And that's not to say, that's not to the detriment of anyone that was involved. It's just sometimes things, the jigsaw doesn't fit together quite as you had planned. So in terms of the music, it was Roy Budd who did the score for Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Uh, most famous for Get Carter, the classic Michael Caine film. I think most people would recognise the music from Get Carter if they heard it. Uh, wouldn't necessarily immediately think of Ray Harryhausen after hearing that score. And that just kind of shows you the, the sometimes slightly fish-out-of-water approach that, that needed to be taken due to this urgency. Also the director, Sam Wanamaker, who I remember from Superman 4, and also the Arnold Schwarzenegger film Raw Deal. But he's most you know, most famous for being a Shakespearean actor and director, he never again or before directed a fantasy film. So again, this was a, a new experience for him. It was, a, it was a different type of directing from what he was used to. So again, the fit wasn't quite there, no matter how much he enjoyed the filming itself or, or working with Ray. Indeed. So you have many of the technical people, you have... Um... You know, you have the, the technical camera people that Ray is used to working with. You've got Ted Moore as cinematographer. You've got Roy Watts as editor. But you're right, you know, that, that opening sequence um, is quite revealing. So you have the uh, the Caliph um, having his sort of coronation. It, 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 it plays like an ICV drama from the time. So there's very much a television look to it. So I think what's possibly happened here... Um, a lot of the setups look like they've had a pre-light, which if you're doing a big TV drama in the 70s and 80s, you're filming Heart to Heart or Dallas and so on. A pre-light is where the set is entirely lit so that any different setup in any part of the set doesn't need a change of lighting, um, which is a good thing. It means you can work fast, but it's a bad thing because everything has a rather flat look to it. And really, you know, from that opening scene, Eye of the Tiger has a, has a, a slight flat look and has these sort of multicoloured uh, titles, which when we think of the, the, the drawings for Seventh Voyage, that marvellous rostrum work around a, a, a um, antique shield for, for Golden Voyage, I, the tiger just doesn't have that same, that same introduction. Um, and Roy Budd is an interesting choice, because as you say, he's more of a contemporary film score person. You know, Wild Geese, Who Dares Wins... Uh, as you mentioned, um, you know, like Get Carter, um, definitely a good composer. And interestingly, um, the score for Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger, which um, which I was doing a bit of research on this because I knew obviously we'd be talking about this today. Um, it was uh, recorded at Wembley's famous uh, CTS studio where lots of film scores and uh, lots of pop stars have recorded. And uh, original master tapes of that do exist, and a CD release of it um, was done a few years ago. It must be about 10 years ago now. 
and uh, you can probably find it on eBay if you look. And it sounds really crisp. So the full stereo tracks for that exist from the original orchestral recordings, which is which is no mean feat because around the same time, um, Moonraker, John Barry's score, which was recorded, I think, in France, the original masters for that no longer exist. So they can't do an expanded version of that score. And John Barry's Raise the Titanic, which I think was also recorded in the same studio in 1980, the original masters, stereo masters for that no longer exist. So we're very lucky um, when things exist. But um, it does feel at times as if Roy Budd is sort of dialing in a bit of Bernard Herrmann, a bit of Miklos Rocha. I know it wasn't Ray's favourite score for many of his films. Um, but again, it was who was available. And a rather curious thing about Roy Budd, he died very young. In the sleeve notes to Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger... They say he was born in 1949 and died in 1992, which would have made him 43. But on his own Wikipedia entry, it says he died age 46 in 1993, having been born in 1947. Uh, either way, though, Connor, stunningly talented young man, and and to be of that age, either 43 or 46, to have died of suddenly of a brain hemorrhage was... Um, I think a real loss to to British filmmaking. No, it's a very tragic age to to pass away, especially when he, he clearly had so much more to give. And if you think about that, when you when you think about his age when he when he died, how young he must have been when he started recording these classic film scores, and when he was working on uh, the Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, he he wasn't wasn't very old at all. So, you know, they've got a younger and contemporary. A composer working on the score. I actually find that the soundtrack to this film is very enjoyable to listen to just as a piece of music on its own. I think some of the criticism has come in for the score when it comes to how it matches the action on screen, but I think as a, as a piece of music by itself it's, it's really entertaining to listen to. Uh, a lot of the themes such as for Melanthius and the baboon and of course the Minotaur theme I think work very well. So I think it's a you know it is an excellent score in its own right. Um comparing it to, to Bernard Herrmann and Miklos Roja is perhaps unfair because these two are, are giants and I think Roy Budd's score is, is definitely memorable and perhaps worth another listen to anybody who hasn't tracked down a copy of that C D you mentioned. And yes, with that in mind, let's have a listen to the track called The Pyramid, which is one of my favourite tracks. And I, I often use this when I do Ray Harryhausen talks. I, I do a compilation from Ray's films. So let's, let's have a listen to uh, The Pyramid.
So I think you're right, Connor. It is, it's, it's music that does stand up on its own. And, uh, you know, it does transport you. And rather than doing what some composers might have done, which was, you know, what would Bernard Herrmann have done? Or let's get some Miklos Rocher on and, and, and do a faux version of that. He very much found his own path for this, uh, for this Sinbad film, which originally was going to be called, am I right in saying, Sinbad at World's End? Yes, 30 years before Pirates of the Caribbean used that title, that was the original for the, the screenplay for this film was Sinbad at World's End. Uh, I think quite late on it was it was changed to Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Both titles are great. I think all the titles for the Sinbad films fit really well. Uh, Eye of the Tiger obviously relates to the character of Zenobia and the Sabretooth at the end of the film. Uh, for me, the movie has a really kind of nostalgic feel. When you watch it, it really just takes you out of the everyday modern world. And as with lots of Ray's films, it really takes you back to a kind of more nostalgic time. I, I really enjoy the sequences near the start of the film where Sinbad and his crew get together and meet the baboon for the first time or the fight with the ghouls. And throughout the film, I'd say... If you're a fan of Ray Harryhausen, the animation is spot on throughout the movie. It's really some of his best work. Oh, it really is. And, you know, an- another point to remember is the next film on is Clash of the Titans. Budget, $15 million. So we're going $15 million for Clash, either Tiger, three and a bit, three and a half, Golden Voyage, 900,000. The clarity of the image because Sony Pictures have scanned this in 4K and it looks absolutely spectacular the clarity of the image of Eye of the Tiger is amongst Ray's best work and yet when we move on to Clash of the Titans it's a muddy and rather grainy looking film that's been produced by Metrocolor Laboratories at the time so it goes to show you that um, you don't always get a, a better image and a sharper image by, uh, by spending more money um, so it, it certainly is, out of the three Sinbad films, I think it certainly does stand up and stands up really well. Um, and it, like the other Sinbad films, choices had to be made. There were um, sequences that never made it. There was going to be a fight between, um, I think it was Minotaur um, and a Yeti, or was it the Troglodyte and the Yeti? I always get the two of them confused which who was going to be appearing in that fight. But there was definitely going to be uh, a Yeti fight in the Arctic, um, and that was ultimately switched to a giant walrus. Um, and there was going to be a, uh, a two-horned prehistoric rhinoceros as well, and that was a fight that was intended with Trog um, in the ancient shrine. So things change, things develop. I think the, the saber-toothed tiger is... It's quite iconic. And you uncovered recently, didn't you, Connor, some lovely images um, with Ray animating it. Quite a, quite a Valdunican-style jumper um, with um, Trog and the Tiger. It's now uh, my screensaver. That's right. There's, you know, being, I think it's just natural uh, that being one of Ray's later films, we have a wealth of material for Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger almost, and I say almost, almost all of the models from the film are still intact Um, and as well as that we have all of the key drawings and lots of fantastic behind the scenes stills from the movie and it's really great to see because Ray previously would be quite secretive about his animation techniques and he didn't want to give away too many of his secrets but there are some fantastic uh, stills of Ray animating on set, animating Trog, the Tiger and the Wasp 
and, and many more and we'll definitely share some of those with the release of this uh, podcast but as you say um, the the animation and the, the clarity it just looks fantastic in, in a sense you feel like with with Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger that's the end of an era really when you we, we discussed at some length last year Clash of the Titans on its 35th anniversary and how different that was from, from many of Ray's previous films so with Eye of the Tiger you get the feeling that this is the last real sort of uh, end of an era for, for Ray Harryhausen movies and that he was working by himself and the bag of tricks that he had for animation were just incredible. So when you look at sequences such as those with Trog and the Baboon, two friendly lead characters who are animated, who are present throughout the entire movie and when you consider how much effort it takes to get both of these creatures animated on set with the live action, with fantastic outdoor scenery and everything else that's going on. It's it's seamless, it looks fantastic and luckily I was lucky enough to, to speak with our conservator Alan Friswell on this recently. He was doing some more fantastic restorations on some of the models, as we'll speak about soon. But he's actually watched the film frame by frame. He went through the entire film one frame at a time just to really immerse himself on the fantastic techniques which Ray used in this film and which he as an animator and as somebody who creates his own models just was was fascinated by as a child. No absolutely and I think probably now's come the time for us to play one of our or a few of our clips together perhaps so this is Ray Harryhausen chatting in the now uh, the previously unreleased audio commentary for Eye of the Tiger with Colin Arthur special effects supremo and here they're going to discuss um, basically some of the on-screen secrets and, and, and Northern Lights and the effect in 2001, A Space Odyssey. From producers Charles H. Schneer and Ray Harryhausen. Uh, there I was on special makeup. Wasn't yeah, I? that's right. But I was also doing some of Ray's things, full size, yeah, the Minotaur in particular, and I tried to do the trog. And, but um, and it was not successful. And Zenobia's makeups and the, the her foot, her gal's foot, Donald Duck's foot, as you say, <laughs> Ray. No, Donald Duck wasn't used. <laughs> but no, a few bits and pieces on it. I hope it won't spoil things knowing how it's done. It's I, better not to know. I don't know, Ray. People I, love your work so much. <laughs> Even though you know how it's done. I got a few up secrets he's, up my sleeve. Uh, I must say, in a sense, uh, you know, um, to uh, Stanley Kubrick, eat your heart out when you see the Northern Lights effect. I worked on 2001, oh, and I know how some of the other effects were done. And <laughs> Ray's technique for that, it's a beautiful effect, and I'm sure if they... They had, uh, Dougie's Trumbull had, see, had seen yeah. that kind of thing and would have maybe leaned in that direction. But they, they took a, a low-flying aircraft yes. over bits of Scotland and things like that and changed the colours. <laughs> Tremendous cost. And uh, yeah. dear Charlie Sneer got it for... Little or nothing. For, for, for got uh, it for nothing. No. <laughs> Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. It's fascinating. You know, you'd think that they'd only made that film, um, you know, a couple of years ago rather than nearly 40 years ago, Connor, wouldn't you agree? When you listen to the two speak, they're obviously very fond of one another. Colin Arthur is a very interesting man to listen to and he's worked on some fantastic films over the years. But to hear them both discuss 
behind the scenes, you know, teasing each other slightly in places about things that maybe didn't go to plan or on-set mishaps and reminiscing together. It must have been fantastic. You were there, John. You were you were there recording. Uh, what was it like to be in a room with, with Colin Arthur and Ray Harryhausen? It was lovely because um, you could see with both of them, you know, they it, it took them both back um, all those years. And there's a great love and respect between Colin Arthur and and Ray Harryhausen and of course Colin had worked as you say on many other films like Never Ending Story and so on and had worked with uh, Stuart Freeborn on the original masks for Stanley Kubrick's epic 2001 so you know a, a real craftsman and artist in his own right and Colin of course has had a, a book or two published about himself and his work uh, but a real gentleman of the film industry and you know you can see there's a real respect there for Ray's work and Colin was thrilled to sit with Ray and discuss the film. And of course, they both went on to great success on the next picture, Clash of the Titans, where Colin created just some iconic makeup effects for um, Neil McCarthy, the actor who played um, Calabos, the Lord of the Marsh. Um, it was great. And all of these record sessions we did um, threw up lots of interesting facts because Ray had spoken extensively in the past to magazines. He didn't tell them everything. And of course, you're hearing it from another perspective. So if you think about when a journalist interviews someone, or when, even when you recount a story to your friends about being on holiday, it's going to be a similar story unless somebody else who was on holiday with you can say something new and help sort of a trigger a, a previously buried um, piece of information. And so all of these commentaries we did with Ray were a form of, if you like, regression therapy where... He was hearing it from another point of view. It suddenly triggered something in his mind. He remembered something he hadn't told anyone before about the special effects or a particularly difficult um, time on set or a happy accident where something happened and he decided to go with it. So it was a real treat and, and privilege for me to be there recording these commentaries. And that's why I'm thrilled, Connor. We have the chance now to share them with um, with all of the fan base, which is... Uh, which is many and varied, as we've been finding out. Yes, it's been a real privilege to listen to the commentaries and to listen to, to Colin Arthur, because obviously he was he was present on set at times where, where Ray wasn't around and vice versa, so they could uh, recount their tales and, and remember different aspects of filming. Um, one of the more interesting stories from Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, of course, was the casting of Miniton, because although Ray didn't like to use a man in a suit. Sometimes it was unavoidable to to have uh, one of his creatures for long shots portrayed by an actor in a fiberglass suit. So this is one of Colin Arthur's additional creations was a full-size suit which required a very tall person. Um, and so they scanned the local newspapers looking for somebody who would fit the bill and came across a hospital porter by the name of Peter Mayhew. Uh, now, if that's a name you recognise, there's a good reason for it, because Peter went on to become Chewbacca in the Star Wars series, a truly iconic creature and character. But of course, his first film was Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. So without Ray Harryhausen and Colin Arthur and everyone else that had been involved in that film, we may not have had quite as, as tall a Chewbacca, quite as perfect a casting. Chewbacca, Star Wars, never heard of it, mate. Oh, do you have, well, you maybe we need. The, there's maybe a Star Wars podcast out there somewhere for you to to listen to. They're probably. Is that still going? Is that still going? Do they still make Star Wars films? Apparently, so I think it's got a bit of a cult fan base. You, you know, 
bit, bit more underground than uh, than the other films that you're interested in. Colin Arthur has a very interesting story, which he related in the commentary, about how he was approached by somebody from Star Wars. We'll let him recount his tale now. See the sorceress bring life to the all-powerful Minotaur. When we were planning this picture, um, it was I knew that I'd have to make a, that creature full size because of Ray's... Um, he's God, but he can't stop water. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, we were looking for a, a, a tall guy to go into the suit because it's... It, whatever happens, if you have a, a, a giant creature to cre- produce, it's the distance between the floor and under the crutch, which yes. gives you to get it in proportion. Yes. And uh, I saw that. this photograph in the Evening Standard of these big feet of Peter Mayhews. And we got in contact with him. And then, as I was finishing the film, Stuart Freeborn from the uh, uh, Star Wars films, yes, yes. especially the makeup guy, who did who did all of the all of the creatures on on the first ones? He just rang me and said, "Oh, you've been using a very tall guy. Uh, what's he like to work with?" I said, "Oh, fantastic, Peter." And so Peter just interesting moved over to there. And, uh, Eat with the power as only I command you. So, John, listening to that, I think it's funny because this is again something that maybe Ray hadn't realised. He obviously knew what Peter went on to do. But he hadn't realised that Colin Arthur had been involved in, in setting that up. Yes, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's funny, the film world is quite a small world. You know, people do know, um, I was having that conversation today with people about sound recorders and cameramen and who I've used and so on. So it, it's a remarkably small world. And Ray would surround himself with the people that he knew he could work with and then the very best of those people. So, you know, Colin Arthur was someone who brought lots of talent to Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Um, it's fascinating to hear them them chatting, really, because um, you know you realise that uh, they really are a wealth of of knowledge, and it's important to have these oral histories. I think people think of commentary tracks as just something that kind of you know clacks away when you're watching the main picture, but you know hearing them isolated just as audio makes us realise that you know if only we'd had more sit downs with other directors of the last twenty or thirty years. Stanley Kubrick famously didn't record any commentaries that we know of for any of his films, and I would certainly want to to hear that. But um, it's interesting, Connor, because most of what you hear from Ray is from these commentaries, isn't it, and from, from documentaries and so on. But you're building quite a picture now, aren't you, of, of his working practices? Yeah, that's right. And I think it's like with a lot of things in life, you maybe don't realise how important it is until you no longer have that resource on tap. If somebody is no longer with us and it's and it's very sad, you wish, I wish I'd asked them this question or I wish somebody had recorded them speaking about that. So this is why the commentaries are so important because these are really are memories which they're not going to be around forever unless somebody takes them down and records them. And like uh, my, my interview with John Kearney uh, on, our, on our recent show, his his memories of Jason and the Argonauts are very different from anybody else on set and probably very different from Ray's, which is why it's so important that we're archiving these and recording them. And the audio-visual aspect of the Ray Harryhausen collection definitely is something vital and something that we're really privileged to share with you on this podcast. Now, earlier this week, I was lucky enough to be joined by Ray Harryhausen's daughter, Vanessa, who is now a trustee of the Foundation. Vanessa was present on the set of many of Ray's later films and has particularly strong and fond memories 
for Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. And so now we'll hear Vanessa talk about her memories of the film and her feelings for it 40 years later. See Sinbad battle the saber-toothed tiger, guardian of the secret shrine. So I'm joined by Vanessa Harryhausen, and Vanessa was on set during the filming of Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, and she's agreed to share some of her happy memories with us today. So Vanessa, where were you um, when the film was being shot? What, what location did you join your father? Um, as far as I remember, it was in Malta. Um, and uh, we used to go out from the hotel out and see Dad film periodically out there, Mum and I. So happy memories. Malta's obviously quite a nice location to, to yeah. spend, spend some time. Yeah, it was lovely. And what sequences were being shot? Um, I remember uh, the snow scene, the iceberg scene, um, and I think uh, on the opposite side there was another section where they had like a big tank in level with the sea, um, and I guess that was for all the, the shooting of the ships and the sort of like a dump tank thing. I don't, I don't, I don't know what you call it. Yeah, the scenes, the sequences with Minotaur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. And did you get to mingle much with the, the cast and crew on, on the set of the film? Yeah, I did. Um, we had several lunches with the guys and it was in a hangar and I can't remember where the hangar was. I presume it was near the where the whole sets were. Um, and they used to have these big trestle tables in this airplane hangar. Um, and we all used to just eat together, crew and actors, and it was lovely. Because listening to interviews or reading interviews with the cast from the film, the impression I get is that there was a great atmosphere. Like it was a big summer holiday for a lot of people working on the film, and it was a very enjoyable film to be a part of. Yeah, no, I did. It, um, it all seemed very friendly, and um, as I said, the actors were very nice, you know, and we all sat and ate together, and I sat next to Kurt Christian, and, you know, um, it was it was lovely. But of course, while you were having, while you and the actors were all having lots of fun, your father was working incredibly hard on getting the the film put together and preparing for animation. Do you remember some of the work that he was carrying out at that time? Yeah, back at home, um, he was doing the saber toothed tiger. I remember seeing that, and also troglodyte. And I was asking about trog and that he wasn't going to kill it off because he always seems to kill off the nice ones. And he says, oh, you'll just have to wait. And I was like, oh, darn, he's going to kill it. <laughs> so, so you had a premonition because Trog's obviously a fan favourite, but you realised before the sequence had even been shot that, that Trog was going to meet a messy end. Yeah, well, I was previously pretty peed with him about um, the griffin in the um, Golden Voyage. He killed that off and... All the nice creatures, he seems to just have to have them come to a sticky demise. But anyway, hey ho, that's that's film, isn't it? <laughs> that's it. That's the that's the dramatic tension that, that gets you involved in the movie. So we're celebrating Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. It's forty years old this year. Um, what are your thoughts? I mean, what did you think of the film when you saw it, and what are your thoughts on the film all these decades later? Um, I thought it was incredible. Um, I thought the ghoul se- sequence of the ghouls coming out of the fire was amazing. Um, I loved all of it and, and the walrus scene. Um, and actually, I remember my dad saying that uh, in that scene, uh, one of the actors fell on the so-called ice, which I don't think it was ice, obviously, in Malta. It was, um, I think, rock salt and whatever they use. 
and uh, the poor chap fell and cut himself quite badly uh, and they had to pick out these I don't know bits out of him in this heat you know and so I think he it wasn't very nice for him you know but he he carried on acting and also they were underneath the fair fur coat I should be saying this really they had their swimsuits on because it was so jolly hot because they couldn't you know they had to make it look like it was cold but wearing fur coats in in sweltering conditions is not conducive to the the so soul <laughs> it might have been a little uncomfortable for some of the actors yeah, then yeah and uh, when you, because the film is obviously on television quite a lot these days, and we always celebrate the film when we when we see it appearing on TV. How do you feel when you see it all these years later? What memories does it stir up in you? Just fond ones. Um, I just think it's amazing that the these little models that you see on the, uh, you know, my dad creating out of these molds and from the very beginning, from the armatures, and then seeing it on screen coming to life, and you think oh my god it looks so big and then when you see the models it's like it's just extraordinary magic really he really was a very very clever man he was indeed and that's why we're so happy to be celebrating this film in 2017 40 years after its initial release thanks very much vanessa you're very welcome come face to face with the prehistoric trog come back to some more thoughts from ray and colin arthur in a moment but um we've got some more if you like contemporary uh Thoughts now. I spent some time with Andy Johnson, who's a very well-known photographer, and any of you who follow us online will have seen his wonderful work photographing the the vast Harryhausen collection um, over the last couple of decades. He was a very good friend to Ray Harryhausen and very good friend to us here at the Foundation. Um, Andy's involved with the fabulous poster book being written by Richard Hollis, um, sci-fi writer, journalist, and, uh, and and author extraordinaire. Now. We met with a few Ray Harryhausen fans who'd submitted posters that we wanted for the book and I caught up with them to find out how the book's going and to get their thoughts on Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. And this is what I found. Join Sinbad, the greatest of all adventurers, in his biggest adventure of all. Hi, my name's Andy Johnson. I'm a fine art photographer and today I'm photographing uh, images of Ray's posters for the forthcoming book that's coming up. Now, Andy, um, obviously you're an accomplished professional photographer, but you have a very special relationship with the Ray Harryhausen Foundation and, of course, Ray Harryhausen himself. Tell yes. me about that. I, I met Ray about probably about 15 years ago now. Um, and I knew of him, but I didn't really uh, take it fully in. But within a few months of working with Ray, just I used to go to his garage. <laughs> it was unbelievable. It was like a bomb site, really. But we got to grips with it. As you know, Ray kept everything and started photographing his collection. Um, Ray, would, Ray would really take an interest in the digital photography and would, uh, bless him, would uh, have this little white stool and sit on it and spend the entire day with me, even sometimes in winter months, which is absolutely freezing cold, especially for an elderly gentleman. Yeah. So if anybody has followed us on Facebook and Twitter, and most of our listeners do, then they will have seen your yeah. effectively iconic photography because all of the collection has been photographed by yourself um, over these last sort of 10, 15 years. So shots they will have seen of Ray with Bubo the Owl, Absolutely. the collection up close. You've taken shots sort of pre and post restoration. So really you're responsible for creating a, a visual archive. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's basically, I was uh, lucky enough to, to basically document his collection, both, uh, both pre and post um, restoration, which is fantastic. But anything from we started off with, uh, there wasn't any system in the beginning, but we just started off with the flat copy work 
uh, which would include drawings, which uh, Ray was just a fantastic draftsman, and then moving on to storyboards, some unrealised material, work films that he'd be working on but never got made. Uh, and then we moved on to the three-dimensional objects, which was uh, just uh, a thrill to do. So many iconic uh, items that I recognised myself, and I just got uh, really encapsulated with the whole project. Yeah. Mike Hankin, uh, we're photographing my posters that I had for, well, I started collecting in the 60s, uh, mostly raised films, not all, but mostly, um, including the, the first one, which is Mysterious Iron, which is uh, the film for me. So for a lot of people listening, they'll know the name Mike Hankin, because your very iconic series of books, and The Master of Magics, um, which is which is having a special reissue, and it's, it's three-volume set. So um, can you tell us a bit about that? The first time they were published, um, it took a little time to take off, but when they did, um, they sold out very quickly. Um, there was only a thousand of each published. Um, of course, what happens is that you finish the books and suddenly people say, oh, did you talk to Sansa? Did you do? And so um, it became necessary that we did a revised edition. And so I went out again and I did some more interviews and uh, my publisher, Ernie Farino, um, found 800 more hardly ever seen photographs that have been added. It's another, I think it's about 20 pages or something like that of each, to each volume, which is going to make it absolutely huge and amazing now. And, um, and of course, a lot of things happened since the last book was uh, published as well, with Ray's passing, of course. That had to be updated in the book too. It's uh, one of those things that's, you know, it took over my life for a long, long time. I started write, writing the books in 83, with Ray's help at that time. Uh, of course then he started writing his books but he still kept on helping me out and still would tell me stories and um, so yes he, he was a you know very loyal person I think he knew how much work I'd put into it and it was the highlight one of the highlights of my life to when I took that first volume to show him and sit there I'd sat there for I think it was three hours and he just went through every single page and every now and exclaim where did you get that photograph from how did you find that out you told me right did i <laughs> it was a uh, just fun i mean uh, it's, it was a wonderful experience and uh, said it's one of the things i'll remember forever where can people purchase your book then if they have a chance to get one because we know they're limited editions where can they find these online or right where well, can they buy them um archiveeditions.com um They'd have to be very, very quick because uh, although um, orders have now closed, actually, uh, last Monday, um, Ernie will squeeze in. But the the thing is with the books is that um, they are printed now to order because of the cost. They they, they cost a lot of money, obviously. The printing costs are huge. Um, So if anybody wants one, they'd have to get in contact with Ernie Farina um, say I want one of these books or even all three books if they are feeling uh, particularly rich um, and yeah, try and squeeze them in and try and get all of them their copy but uh, 
have to be very very quick now because it's a it's already been delayed um it's probably a year later than it should have done or should have been published um but it's now near here and uh, once it's out there's none of the books will be appearing on uh, in shops or online you won't be able to buy it uh, that's it if you haven't ordered it you won't get it it'll be too late you need Minuton to help you find one need more than Minuton <laughs> no one had a bad word for Ray um, everyone admired him greatly um, I just yeah he, he was one of these people that uh, uh, garnered respect for what he did and to a person they they said that once they saw the films they thought oh that's what I was fighting <laughs> and it's because it there's nothing there you know apart from Ray with his uh, monster stick um, but uh, yeah they, they all admired his work greatly everybody so if anyone wants to get one of the books go uh, google archive editions or even Marshall and the Magics and it will come up Hello, my name's Simon Greetham and I'm uh, down here today. Uh, we're photographing uh, posters. Now, I've, I've been interested in uh, f- horror and film fantasy uh, for as long as I can remember since I was a young child. And um, once I started work in my early teens, I had the, uh, shall we say, the available funds to start buying and adding to my collection. And that's when I really started going around a lot of the film fairs and um, sort of picking up and, and, and purchasing film posters uh, from the sort of 1940s onwards, really. Uh, I generally collect on, on Ray's films, but also on, on the British fantasy films, Hammer films, Amicus, etc. So that's how my interest started, and uh, so it's, you know, the last 30-odd-plus years. Posters, I don't know, They've, they take you back to go and see the film. As soon as you look at them and... Well, I said the artwork is amazing, especially on some of Ray's films, uh, which very famous artists worked on them, of course. Yeah. What was originally a disposable piece of advertising yeah. is now considered to be quite rightly fine art yeah. that gets auctioned at galleries for sometimes tens of thousands, hundreds, hundreds of thousands, of and even you know over the million mark. Yeah, if you're going to put it in some sort of perspective, these uh, posters were designed just to be used as as the film was shown and then discarded, really, especially during the the early years of the, of the 30s and 40s and even 20s, the silent eras. Uh, as an example, there's probably, well, we know there's only two copies of The Mummy, 1932, Boris Karloff, in the world. And the last time that came out for auction, it sold at Sotheby's for $450,000, actually, which was the most expensive piece. Apparently now that there is a private, a private sale has taken place for a Metropolis 3 sheet with the Force Maria and no text on it. And that was sold privately for one point three million dollars. That's incredible, isn't it? I think so. there is there is a, a dealer uh, Stephen Fisher who has the only known copy of a six sheet for Frankenstein, which just looks fasc- amazing. Actually, you you can't really describe it. And I know that he's been offered three million dollars for that, but he's actually turned that down flat. So you know, one day soon we could probably see a film poster making five six million dollars. It's quite possible nowadays. Uh, it, it's unfortunate that it's it's probably out of a lot of people's hands now. Certainly, uh, people of a younger age who've just started work. Because um, when I was uh, sort of started, you could pick film posters up for two or three pounds, 
now the same sort of titles I was buying then you're probably talking two or three hundred up to you know a thousand pound plus so it unfortunately it has uh, taken it away from the, the fans and the collectors uh, so I'm, I'm sort of glad that I started when I did and I, I'm not I'm, although I'm still looking for items for my collection I'm I'm, I'm grateful that of the collection I've got because I wouldn't want to start trying to find find them as well not just afford them because they are becoming um, quite scarce items to find now as well. So it's really good that they've been collated in this book because it's going to be achievable for you know somebody who's interested in yeah. posters to have a look yeah. and of course the people who are having their posters in the book will be credited. And yeah it's important to, to show these pieces um, because they're getting scar- uh, scarce and, and much harder to find. And the artwork in them, there were serious artists working on these, pi- on these pieces or graphic designers. Um, and they deserve to be acknowledged, actually. And they're just wonderful. It's always hard to pin down what's your favourite because Ray was often asked what was his favourite <laughs> film or monster. And people say it's like picking a favourite child. Yes. But which in your collection are your favourites? And also which are the rarest? Because it's not always one in the same, is it? No, it, it isn't. I mean, uh, some of the sort of advanced one sheets that were sort of, uh, you know, limited to uh, the print runs. Um, but I think so, some of my favourites are the some of the US window cards. Uh, because they're very colourful of that period, the sort of universal type period. So some of the earlier works, sort of 20 million miles to earth, it came from beneath the sea, uh, are a wonderful sort of artwork of the sort of 50s classic sci-fi era. Uh, But others of my favourites are, one of my favourites is First Men in the Moon, because I, I just think looking at that, you know, if you saw that outside the cinema, whether the film was good, bad or indifferent, it would just pull you into the cinema because the, the image and, and how exciting it looks is, is wonderful. And you've got a very rare double bill for First Men in the Moon. And an interesting story how you picked that up as well. Tell me about that. Yeah, that, I mean, that one, I'd, I'd sort of seen the original um, quad for that. Uh, which I'd got in my collection, uh, but I, I was aware that there was um, a double bill, and I'd seen an image within the original press book. Um, so it was, it was. I had quite a long time trying to hunt down a, a copy of that, which I eventually found. Uh, and the artwork on um, the double bill with, I think, it's East of Sudan, is is in my view is 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 far superior to the the full quad version because it's a a very finished artwork whereas the full quad is is quite rough looking when uh, when you sort of look at it so it's uh, yeah it's a lovely lovely piece yes. when we think of double bills we think of the poster being sort of even artwork 50% on each side and on that one it's not it's the first no, moon it's... moon which is superior definitely but it's kind of pushed to the right yes isn't it? i mean obviously when that went out i think the the the, the double bill quad was issued at the same time Time and some cinemas would have just shown First Men in the Moon on its own. Some would have shown the double bill with East of Sedan. So that was the, the main feature. And both of the films were um, Charles Schneer productions and Nathan Duran was the director. So I assume that the studio would have had some view on putting those two together at that time to, to put them out to the public. Now, um, in a slight deviation, we're doing a uh, 40th anniversary podcast for Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. I've been asking the guys here today about their memories, some good, some bad, of the, of the, uh, of the third and final in the Sinbad trilogy. Um, what are your thoughts? Oh, I, I think very good poster, but uh, what are your thoughts on the film? 
uh, the film was it's not one of my favourites actually dare I say that uh, I'm a, a Jason the Argonauts fan actually <laughs> and First Man to Moon but um, yeah it's not it's, it's, it's still Ray and he's still got some technical achievements in it but uh, as for, for me it's not particularly my fave has come in for a lot of criticism uh, the eye of the tiger um i did talk to the the director and um I, I really didn't think he was the right director but some of ray's work is in it is some of his best um everyone loved trog and it, okay he didn't speak but the grunts said it all really <laughs> and the director was of course sam wanamaker the very well-known yeah. um, american actor yes who was yeah. responsible for putting the globe back wasn't he back on the, on the map yeah, yes was. i mean that's where i uh, i interviewed him at the globe um it's a very special day because he gave me a tour of the globe at the time and um, that was his baby but even talking to him he, he never really wanted to do the film and it was charles schneer who um persuaded him really but um seems odd though why because you know you wouldn't turn down the chance to direct a hollywood movie and he was a hollywood actor what what was it why did charles schneer want him when he wasn't really a director i, I really don't know well he, he had directed a few films hadn't he as a maker um maybe charles thought he would bring a little bit more seriousness into it you know um because i suppose as an actor's director he was very good with actors wasn't yeah, he yes. that's right. the ideas were there and in some of the imagery is amazing i mean with the, the pyramids and the gate and all that sort of thing but um and i don't the budget was a little bit more than golden voyages well. yeah, it was yes yeah. so uh, golden voyage was about nine hundred thousand yeah. dollars and i the tiger was three and a half million dollars so quite a quite a push up from yeah. from from that and of course the musical choice you know ray always he was he great friends with Bernard Herrmann, the iconic um, composer of, of so many Hollywood classics, and of course Miklos Rocha for um, Golden Voyage from Ben-Hur and, and so on. So Roy Budd was um, an unexpected and, un, and an unusual choice for the score for Eye of the Tiger. Yeah, well he got a lot of praise for Soul to Blue, uh, which was a very good soundtrack. And um, it, it's a strange thing that, um, again, a lot of criticism about the score, but if you listen to it away from the film, it's very good you know it's it's got quite a lot of depth but it, somehow it doesn't come across in the film very well it, it, it always sounds monotonous you know it's, it's very strange but um no I, I said a lot of people you know tend to put it down a little bit but um it's got some very very good points I'll be honest, I don't think it's not one of my favourite uh, of the uh, Harryhausen films, but it, it's a very, very good tale, very good effects, great, great creatures, shall we call them, not monsters. So, yeah, I mean, I think it still uh, stands the test of time and it's and it's a great Saturday afternoon sat by the TV or watching it. So, I, I mean, I like it myself. I, uh, I think it's a good story. Um, I think the, the characters are, are great. Sinbad is great. You know, you've got Patrick Trout and so What more can you ask, really, from a Ray Harryhausen film? To a land beyond imagination. So there you go, uh, Connor. It just shows that I do get out sometimes and meet people and uh, ask them what their, their thoughts are. And quite a mixed bag there um, of views, but all very um, very warm and loving comments compared to if you will the uh, the published and official reviews at the time which were quite sniffy and dismissive um, you know 
the film's been scanned in 4K, money has been spent on it to bring it to a new market, that wouldn't be happening if the film wasn't up to snuff. You know, if it really was the uh, the, the runt of the litter of the three in the Sinbad trilogy, then uh, we wouldn't still be discussing it today either. Well, it was a it was a very successful and very popular film, and 40 years on, we're still speaking about it. And it, I actually find it's one that fans have really taken to their heart when they when you know when our in our recent episode we asked fans to send in their thoughts about Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger very warm memories that people had and it's a film I think that a lot of uh, younger fans enjoy as well I guess people watch the film for Ray's animation it's got everything really that you could want in it and I think that appeals to a lot of younger fans pretty much from the get-go from the minute those ghouls appear on screen you've got animation right the way through to the end of the movie and I think that's what appeals to a lot of fans and if you're interested in animation yourself or if you're an animator or a sculptor or an artist there's so much to invest yourself in and enjoy so we've spoken before about critics in previous podcasts um i know that ray would uh, sometimes be quite dismayed by the reviews that his movie got but his uh, vindication really came through how beloved his films were by his fans and by the the fact that his films are always successful and they're always shown, you know, you can open up a TV guide any week and, you know, you, you are very good, Connor, about tweeting and Facebooking these things with um, the good folk down at Film 4, other channels. Channel 5 here in the UK showed a, a brilliant double bill, a, a Greek mythology double bill of Jason and Clash on a recent Bank Holiday Monday. So you're right, you know, those films are not put on for our benefit or to keep us happy. No one's interested in that. Um, they are there because they still turn a coin. You know, there is still money to be made from these films. And whether it's nostalgia or the fact you can immerse yourself in these fabulous adventures, then, um, you know, why not? And, you know, now I was thinking about Eye of the Tiger. It's, in some ways, it's quite a forward-thinking story because you've got Margaret Weising there playing the... Um, playing the, the lead villainess, um, the ultimate sort of pushy mum as she's trying to uh, to get her son um, inserted as the caliph, effectively. Um, so to have a, a woman in that lead part playing that kind of overbearing mum slash witch, I think was, um, was quite a departure for most of Ray's films. I don't think there's been a lead villain, if we can excuse Medusa. I don't think there was a lead villainess in any of Ray's films. Um, I don't know if the Twitter arty will come down on me now and troll me and say otherwise, but as I quickly Rolodex Ray's films in my head, I think I'm right in saying that, Connor, aren't I? There's not another lead villainess. I think you're right. I think what Ray was looking for was a female uh, Conrad Veidt, obviously the uh, the actor that he'd grown up watching, and I think Margaret Whiting did a fantastic job in the role of Zenobia as this uh, wicked... You know, it's an archetype, the wicked stepmother, but it's in in the in place of um, Torrent Thatcher and Tom Baker from previous Sinbad movies. She really kind of steals the show as this uh, wicked um, antagonist. But also from from this from a kind of similar point of view, you have two strong female protagonists in the film, in Princess Farah, played by Jane Seymour, and Dion, played by Taron Power. You know, you have two strong female lead characters they're not damsels in distress they're part of the gang they um you know they they do their bit in the story they uh they fight all the way through to the end and again that was unusual for for race films as well to have two, two very different female lead characters that are really part of Sinbad's troop that that plow on to to Hyperborea at the end of the film 
And you've got John Wayne's son, Patrick, playing Sinbad and very much looking the part. You know, when you think about the posters and the images and those front of house sets, Patrick Wayne looks every part the Sinbad. Um, And I think he's kind of terrific. He gives a really, in in some ways, quite a 70s style performance. Um, It's very engaging. He's very watchable on screen. You feel that, you know, he is Sinbad. He's very charismatic. Um, but it's a lighter tone. I think, you know, when you when you get all three Sinbads together and watch them in a, in a, in a lovely binging Sinbad weekend, it is a much lighter, more playful tone in places. Well, look, let's go back to, to Ray Harryhausen chatting with Colin Arthur about model making, about the ghoul fight with Patrick Wayne and Zenobia's boat. These are the eyes of the tiger. I always felt that Patrick was more physical than uh, um, the other Sinbad. John yeah. Philip Law, yes. And for those fight sequences, the fight sequences, was it a help that he was so agile? And well, he was agile, very agile, yeah. Mm. The stories over that boat. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, it was Zenobia's boat. Ah, right. It was on the raft. Yes. On the raft, yes. On the, that, on now, this barrels. is... That's... This was um, <clears throat> built by the prop master, uh, Eddie Fowley. Right. Um, it was a... You take a, a, uh, the trailer of a, of, of, a tr- of a lorry, a truck, you know, the trailers that yeah. you see with containers on them, and he built a steel structure over the top of the trailer um, about that high, so just over a meter high. And he put blocks of polyspan uh, sandwiched and jammed in underneath this thing and then built the the boat over the top. And uh, it was put into the sea at Cabo de Gata in, in Almeria. And it had some big concrete weights in the between the four wheels in the center part of the chassis and if i can tell you it floated like a half full uh, uh, imagine a beer bottle half full of water or beer yes. floating in a river well it floated like that it go down and come up you never knew which way it was going to oh, come up right. <laughs> uh we could it never turn over but it was it was a an awkward ride, <laughs> to say the least. Back to where legends first began, where fantasy is real and the land of the lost is rediscovered. Fabulous. Now we've got one last clip of Array to play, which we will uh, keep for the end of the show. Um, just to give a bit of an update, if this episode goes out before the 27th of May, uh, myself and Connor will be at Comic-Con in London at the Excel Centre May the 27th at 2.30pm for a very special presentation, a Q&A and a short film. Uh, so if you're in London for Comic-Con, then um, please come and see us. We're going to be talking as part of the Barbican's exhibition, Into the Unknown. So at London, Comic-Con, 27th of May, and later then at the Barbican for an exhibition, we'll be previewing some of the wonderful restorations that uh, that you really supervised, didn't you, Connor? You supervised those... Uh, Barbican restorations for us. 
Well, supervised is one word. I think watching Alan work uh, with my my jaw dropped uh, (laughs) in awe of his fantastic skills is is another way of putting it because I really just uh, find it incredible the the amazing work that Alan Friswell has done for us recently. And you'll be able to see close up the selenites and the dinosaurs from 1 million years BC and perhaps most famously, Guanji himself. These are models that Alan recently worked on restoring and repairing for a long exhibition. Uh, so it's, it's going to be really fantastic to see people get up close with these models because that's what Ray wanted. Ray wanted people to see his models. He didn't want them just buried away forever. He wanted them to be out and for his fans to see them and for young animators to see them. So they're going to be on display at the Barbican uh, throughout the summer and it's it's going to be fantastic. From from June the 3rd it opens um, and as, as John mentioned we'll both be appearing at uh, Comic-Con in London. It's the biggest comic convention in the whole of the UK and right there in the, in the middle of Saturday afternoon peak time uh, John will be speaking as part of the Barbican's panel. So what, have you got anything special in store for, for Comic-Con John? I know that you're, you're, you do fantastic talks but what will you be speaking about specifically relating to the Barbican exhibition? Well, that's right, Connor. I'll be chatting about the work that um, Alan has done. We'll be previewing some of this as well. And we'll be talking about some of the plans that the Foundation has. We'll be talking about the uh, the poster book. And we'll be revealing some more exclusive images never before seen, um, especially for Comic-Con London. Um, and we're very excited to be part of Comic-Con. It's the first time there's been an official Harryhausen Comic-Con mashup, as the young people would call it. And, and it's surprising, given that Comic-Con has such a, uh, a heritage in this sort of fantastic films area, that um, it's surprising we haven't got together before. But we're, we've got together now, and there's, there's talk of us possibly doing uh, Comic-Con in Birmingham later in the year, in November. So um, lots of exciting things coming up. Yes, absolutely. Lots of lots of big plans on the topic of Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger uh, for for fans north of the border or tourists coming to Scotland. Uh, the film will be screening outdoors in the centre of Edinburgh for free on the 18th of June. And again, that's at half past two in the afternoon. So we'll be having our fingers crossed for lots of beautiful Scottish sunshine. You can sit in the park in St Andrew's Square, which is right in the city centre, and watch, as part of the Edinburgh International Film Festival, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, a 40th anniversary screening for free celebrating this classic film with an exclusive introduction from the Foundation looking at some of the exclusive images and behind-the-scenes shots that that we've spoke about throughout this episode. Now, you did this already last year, and it was an enormous success, Connor. You, You came along with exclusive images, and you did an intro to, was it 1 million years BC? That's right, and and seeing one million years BC in public on that big screen, it looked fantastic. The the sequence where the Brontosaurus walks in the background, it's obviously very appropriate for Edinburgh with all our volcanic rocks and uh, all the fantastic landscapes and scenery we have around the city centre. Uh, so one million years BC was was a fantastic success. This film, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, is going to be on um, a very family friendly afternoon of movies because before our film. Appropriately enough, there'll be a screening of the Oscar-nominated Kubo and the Two Strings. Uh, for anyone that's not seen it, it's a, it's a must-watch for all Ray Harryhausen fans because that was created by Leica Studios, who are massive fans of Ray's. And in fact, when they were nominated for their Oscar, they dedicated 
the nomination to Ray Harryhausen. And it just goes to show in 2017 how much of an influence that Ray has had on, on modern filmmakers and animators. So this will be a fantastic day of, of movies for the whole family. So we'd love to hear from all of you. What's your favourite sequence from Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger? It doesn't necessarily have to be a stop motion animation sequence. Uh, for me, for the non-stop motion sequences, it's Zenobia. When a spoiler alert, incidentally, uh, for Zenobia, when she takes the, uh, the the medicine to turn herself back from a seagull into into the monstrous witch, there was not enough, not enough, and she was left with a, a seagull's foot, quite a large one, um, <laughs> which uh, which I'm not sure if that was a, a bit of a plot hole. She had a massive seagull's foot in place of the tiny little delicate one she would have had as a seagull, but I was a bit creeped out by that, um, and also the heart being put into Minotaur was a little bit creepy in the opening and um, so they're, they're two of my sort of favorite non-animated sequences uh, and we'd love to hear from from all of our twitter followers and facebook followers and people who listen to us here on the podcast what were your favorite monsters your favorite sequences and as i say it doesn't have to be a, a stop motion or a dinorama sequence what were yours connor i'm going to go for a very obvious choice but i think a very fitting choice the the baboon sequence uh, well, all of the baboon sequences, really, the chest sequence is fantastic. And the sequence where the baboon sees himself in the mirror and a single tear rolls down his cheek. Now, this is really Ray's acting through stop-motion animation. He's uh, basically, he's got a, a model made from latex and metal skeleton and fur, and he's really created a living creature from this. And to make such a such a creation emote on screen and really reflect the creature's inner emotions I think is is a really wonderful testament to Ray's abilities as an animator and an artist. Um, so all of the baboon sequences are fantastic. And of course Trog, who can forget Trog? Trog is probably one of Ray's most beloved creations. So tragic at the end when it, when he's killed by the tiger. But uh, Trog with his, with his club and his facial expressions just uh, really wonderful to watch and uh, to have to have two protagonists that are both animated and as I said part of the gang towards the end of the film I think is just a, a wonderful accomplishment by Ray. I think I don't know what it says about both of us but I see you're drawn to the the good guys so you're drawn to Trog and the baboon I'm drawn to the bad guys including Minotaur so um interesting interesting um I, I i've noticed that with all of ray's films it's particularly the bad ones i'm drawn to so we, we've got a final clip now to play um with ray and colin uh talking about zenobia's foot and uh we look forward to seeing everyone next time remember to follow us on facebook and twitter and uh we leave the final words to uh, to ray harryhausen is there enough Yes, by all the gods of the underworld, there must be. Obviously, Ray had seen um, the, the foot that I brought from uh, London, and then they decided they didn't like it, so it was panic, 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 make another. Yeah. The, the second one was, was, was fantastic, worked very well, didn't it? Ray? Did huh? the second girl's foot work okay? <laughs> yes, it there did. There was silence. Huh? I was just waiting for <laughs> to say something. No, it please. was okay. I didn't know you made it. The first one looked like Donald Duck. But yeah, I know the first one looked like Donald Duck. <laughs> <laughs>
Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered charity, number SC001419, 2017. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Facebook and Twitter links.